following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're going to finish this series this week. So we've worked through Genesis 1 and 2 and most of Genesis 3, and we come now to the end of Genesis 3. So if you have a Bible, uh, pull it out. If you have a Bible on your, on your device, like the Version app, which is an awesome app uh, with all sorts of stuff in it, not just Bibles, but all kinds of good resources in there. That's a great one to get. And Jay Choi is going to come and read this passage for us this morning. Thank you, Jay. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the live animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce stones and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since, you, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Thank you, Jay. A little while ago on TV, I saw a movie uh, called I, Daniel Blake. Anyone seen that movie? I hadn't heard of it uh, before that, but it was an interesting movie. It's about this guy uh, living in, a British guy living in Newcastle, uh, ordinary guy, he's 59 years old, and his wife has previously passed away, so he's living on his own, and he has a heart attack at work, and his doctor tells him that he's no longer able to work. So he applies for the sickness benefit. But the government agency that gives out sickness benefits tell him that he should be working. And they think he can work. So they refuse to give him the benefit. And so the movie is really the story of him trying to appeal this decision, trying to overturn this decision, trying to get the sickness benefit. And meantime, he's got no income. And he's drifting further and further into poverty. And along the way, he meets this woman, Katie. She's a solo mom. She's got a couple of kids, and she's battling. She's, she's in poverty as well, and she's struggling to put food on the table for her children and just make ends meet. 
and he tries to get alongside her and help her as best he can. And at one point in the movie, Katie is so desperate and so so hungry, she goes into prostitution to try and just just try and provide some basic uh, source of income. And Daniel pleads with her to get out of this, and she says, "It's the only way I can possibly survive." Uh, and and toward the end of the movie, he finally gets his appeal date. And on the day of his appeal, he has another heart attack, and he dies. And the last scene in the movie is his funeral. And Katie stands up and gives the eulogy and talks about how he was really just treated more like an animal than a person in his life and how he was denied the dignity and the value and the respect that he deserved as a human person. And that's it. The movie finishes there. And you're just sort of left with this feeling of this is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, This is not right. There's there's something broken here. There's something fundamentally wrong that that people have to live like this, that people are reduced to this, that people live and die in this way. And the reality is, of course, even though that's a a fictional story and fictional characters, there's a lot of people who live exactly like that. That's life. And they battle against grinding poverty and they're in desperate situations and their desperation pushes them to do things, awful things, and make terrible decisions. But they've got very few prospects and very few options and very little hope for a better future. There's a lot of people like Daniel Blake living without dignity and without much hope and without a lot of support and help that a lot of us would enjoy. And there's a lot of theories about why this is, about why it is we live in a world with so many Daniel Blakes and Katie's. Why we live in a world where society seems so broken and there's educational theories around this, there's psychological theories, there's economic and political and educational theories, but ultimately none of those theories get to the real answer. I mean, they all shed some light and there's some truth in all of them that none of those theories ultimately take you to the true explanation for why the world is so messed up because that answer is found in this story. That answer is found in this passage that Jay read out because the ultimate explanation for why the world is so broken and messed up is not political, economic, social, psychological, or educational. It is theological and spiritual in nature. And that explanation is grounded in Genesis 3. So I want to walk with you through this passage and just have a look at this, this story and how it answers that question of why is the world the way it is? Why is the world so messed up? And how does it get fixed? Because that's here too. It's not all hopelessness. It's not all doom and gloom here. There's actually a tremendous amount of hope in this passage, and we will get to that as well. Okay, so let's dive in here. This, this story, because it's been a few weeks since we did the first half of the chapter, this story comes right off the back of Adam and Eve eating that fruit of the tree they were forbidden to eat from, okay? So they have, they have undertaken that act. They've seized that fruit for themselves. They've seized control and autonomy for themselves rather than trusting God. We looked at this in the first half of the chapter. And so now they have fractured that relationship they have with God. They've severed their connection to God. And now God confronts them with the effects of their sin. And what he does in this chapter really is to pronounce a curse. He pronounces this curse upon Adam and Eve and the serpent, and even more broadly than that. And this, when you think about this curse that God pronounces, okay, don't think like Harry Potter. This is not like a curse that witches put on people. This is not some strange hex that that is put on Adam and Eve. Really what God's doing in this chapter is he is spelling out the logical implications of what Adam and Eve have done. So he is describing to them the repercussions of this act and how the effects of that sin are going to be a lot broader than just eating the fruit of a tree. 
Okay, so a way to think about this, a little illustration is think about a, a pebble being thrown into a lake. And the initial splash of the pebble is that act of Adam and Eve eating from the tree, but immediately what starts to happen? It ripples. And you get these concentric circles of broader and broader ripples, and that are the effects of sin in the world and in humanity. And what God is describing in this chapter are the ripple effects of sin and how they move out and out and out and create broader and broader damage in the world. Okay, So God here speaks to the serpent, and then he speaks to Eve, and then he speaks to Adam. I want to come back to the serpent, even though that's first in the text. I want to come back and look at that because there's a particular part there that hooks in later on. But first, let's start with what he says to the woman, to Eve, in verse 16. He says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. It's a thorny verse, that one, isn't it? couple of different parts to this. Okay, first of all is the pain in childbearing. This is an area no male is ever qualified to talk about. Angels fear to tread. But what I can tell you is this. The Hebrew word, I'm sticking to my business here. The Hebrew word for childbearing actually involves more than just the physical act of giving birth. The word childbearing refers to the whole process of bringing children into the world, right from conception through pregnancy and giving birth itself. And the word pain that God uses here does not just refer to physical pain, but also mental and emotional pain. So you see, there's a broader set of circumstances that are in view here. This is not just the physical pain of giving birth to a child. This is all of the pain that women experience along the whole journey. This would include the emotional anxiety around getting pregnant or wanting to be pregnant. This would include the emotional pain and anxiety around carrying a pregnancy to full term, uh, the emotional and physical turbulence of pregnancy, and then all the emotional and physical trauma of giving birth itself. All of that is involved in this phrase, pains of childbearing. And what that means is that this part of the curse affects a bigger group of women, doesn't it, than just those who physically give birth to children. It would also affect those women who want to be mums, who want to give birth to children, but are unable to be. They also experience this pain, don't they? Just in a different way. And so what God is saying is all of this emotional and physical pain that women go through around childbearing, bringing children into the world, or not being able to bring children into the world, all of that is one of the repercussions of that original sin in the garden. Now, God is not saying that this pain in childbearing is some kind of personal judgment from God against women. Okay, let's be really clear about this. This is not some kind of personal judgment from God against individuals in any circumstance or against women in general. God is simply saying this is one of the ways in which that act of Adam and Eve's in the garden is now starting to ripple out. And you see the ripple effects. It starts by affecting humanity's relationship with God that vertical relationship between us and God. But now already you see the first little ripple coming out. Now it's affecting our relationship with ourselves. Our own personal, mental, physical well-being is affected by sin. And God is saying this is going to be one of the results of living in a world that is contaminated and corrupted by sin in the broken, fallen world that we find ourselves. One of the results of that is this pain and childbearing that women experience. Okay? Then the ripple goes further. And God then says... To the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
Now, this has been controversial for a number of reasons, but really what it comes down to is understanding what is meant by the word desire and the word rule. What does it mean for the woman to desire her husband? What does it mean for the husband to rule over his wife? Well, very helpfully, we have a big clue in the next chapter of Genesis because in chapter 4, verse 7, both of those words appear together again in, the, in a single verse. So that's a big lead. That's a big clue in interpreting something that is less clear back in Genesis 3. So let me just read this verse for you. In Genesis 4, 7, and this is God now talking to Cain, Adam and Eve's son. He says, halfway through verse 7, But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, there's desire, but you must rule over it. There's rule. Okay? So, What's desiring in this case is sin. Sin is desiring to have Cain, and that's not a good desire. That's a bad desire. Sin is desiring to master Cain. Sin is desiring to have power over Cain. Sin is desiring to have control over Cain and to to put him in chains, really, to oppress him. And so for Cain to rule over sin means for him to have some self-control, to have self-mastery to dominate his impulses so that he's not just at the whim of sin. So you bring that back to chapter 3, where the woman's desire is for her husband and the husband rules over his wife. And what you see is for, for the woman to desire her husband in this sense, that's not a positive thing. Okay, this desire, this is not some kind of romantic desire or some kind of sexual desire that the woman has for her husband. This is a desire to control. Just like sin is desiring Cain, this is a desire to control, a desire to dominate, a desire to coerce, a desire to bully in some sense. And likewise, for the husband to rule over his wife is not a positive thing. This is his inclination to dominate his wife, to oppress her, to control her, to reduce her and make her feel lesser, less important and less special. So this really is not a recipe for a happy marriage here, is it? This, I mean, some people look at this verse and they're like, oh, there you go. It says the husband's got to rule over his wife. That's what I'm going to do. Listen, this is the curse of sin. If, if you want a model for a happy marriage, you go back to Genesis 2. This is a damage report on the effects of sin in the world. And what it speaks to is the propensity of husbands and wives to dominate, manipulate, coerce, bully, and oppress one another and try and use power to get what they want. That's what's being said here. Okay, so this is a a picture of marriage gone wrong. And it's a picture of the the effect that the curse of sin has upon human marriages, that it destroys this kind of love and selflessness that we have and replaces it with a desire to exercise subtly or not so subtly some kind of power over the other person. Can you see the ripple effects? Starts with the pebble in the lake, our relationship with God. Now it's rippled out to our relationship with self, personal, emotional, mental well-being. Now it's rippled out to relationships with one another. Now sin is busting up marriages. Now sin is destroying families. Now it's affecting human relationships on the horizontal level. It's going wider and wider and wider. And it goes wider still. Look at what God says to Adam then. Come all the way down to verse 17, halfway through verse 17, he says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the way, notice in this, in this text, God never curses Adam and Eve directly. 
You notice that? He does curse the serpent, but he doesn't curse Adam and Eve directly. Instead, he says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, this ground, Adam, that you're going to be working and tilling and cultivating and nurturing, it's going to work against you now and not for you. It's going to be hard work cultivating this ground because it's going to start producing thorns and thistles and weeds and gorse and briars and nettles and all of these other things. And this land is not going to be easy. I mean, it was always going to take work for Adam to cultivate the ground. It was always going to take effort. But now God's saying that is going to be hard, hard yakka. This is going to be painful. It's going to be exhausting. It's going to be debilitating. It's going to be tedious and monotonous working the ground because the land is cursed and it's going to work against you rather than for you. And don't we all experience literally the effects of that curse at this time of year when you're all in your gardens and you're pulling out the weeds and you're cursing the weeds. And as you're cursing the weeds while you're pulling them out or spraying them, whatever you're doing, you can be thinking back to Genesis 3 and thinking, Adam and Eve, man, they've got a lot to answer for. That's why these weeds are growing in my garden. Thanks very much, Adam and Eve. But it is one of the effects of the curse. When you're trying to get gorse off your property and you're getting all cut up by the gorse, you can be thinking back to Genesis 3, cursed is the ground. It's what God said. Cursed is the ground. The ground is working against us now, not for us. And at a broader level, what is God saying? All of creation is under the curse. See, this is so important. Sin does not just affect human relationships. It affects the physical creation itself. It is true that only human beings can sin. But our sin, and Adam and Eve's sin, affected more than just humanity. It affected creation. All of creation, the entire cosmos, the entire universe, is corrupted now and contaminated by sin. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, creation is in bondage. It's in chains. It's imprisoned. It's a prisoner. It's under the curse and it's groaning. It's the word Paul uses. All of creation is groaning now for its liberation. The earth is groaning to be set free because just like us, it's feeling the weight of the curse, feeling the effects of sin. And that means for us, there are going to be many times when creation works against us rather than for us. And haven't we seen that with the Indonesian tsunami? in the last week or so. I think over 1,500 people now, the death toll keeps on rising. Many, many more homeless and injured. And as Christians, when we look at that event, one of the things we should think is back to Genesis 3, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the physical earth. What you're seeing when you look at those pictures of devastation is not God's judgment on Indonesia. Some Christians go off on a crazy path with this, as if this is some visitation of God's judgment on a certain group of people. No. What you are seeing in that devastation is creation groaning. What you're seeing, you read Romans 8, creation groaning for its liberation, the earth groaning, literally groaning, and now it turns against us rather than being for us. Now, that's not to say there weren't tsunamis and earthquakes before the fall. There may have been. If the earth was still made up of tectonic plates, then presumably those plates are going to shift around. But the difference would have been, these events may have been natural occurrences. They would not have been natural disasters. They would not have threatened human life. 
they would not have caused this kind of catastrophe. But now, in the post-fall era, these things happen, and they threaten human existence, and they cause devastation. And it all comes back to this. Cursed is the ground. Can you see the ripple effects? Starts with human beings against God, ripples out to our relationship with self, ripples out to our relationship with one another, and now ripples out to our relationship with creation itself, broken and severed and destroyed because of sin. Sin reaches to the furthest ends of the cosmos. And as you get to the end of this curse that God pronounces, that's really the effect that this passage is supposed to have on us. We are supposed to just sit back and have this panoramic view of the devastation that sin has caused in God's good world. And we're just supposed to have this this view of like a wasteland where every part of God's world is corrupted by sin. We need, I think, as Christians to have a bigger view of sin. Might sound funny to say, but we need a bigger view of sin. Sometimes we just think of sin as this little thing that exists in my heart in a very individual way that I've broken rules and God's not happy with me as if it's all just the vertical. No, sin affects the horizontal. It goes really, really broad. The entire creation's under the curse. The curse of sin is cosmic. It reaches to every furthest extent of the cosmos. It reaches to the furthest extent of our soul. Sin reaches out to touch everything that God created and once called good. This is what theologians call total depravity. There is no part of God's creation. There is no part of the human person that is untouched, untainted, and unstained by sin. Sin is utterly pervasive in its effects. And we need to wrestle with that as Christians for reasons that will become clear. Because the bigger view you have of sin, the more unbelievable it is what God does next. You look at the next thing God does in this story. After he's pronounced this curse, he's finished this curse. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So what God should have done at this point is destroy them, right? That would be the logical thing to do. They'd botched things up. They'd completely wrecked the whole project. God should have just wiped them out on the spot, shouldn't he? That should have been it. The whole Bible should have only been three chapters long. That should have been the end of the story. In any other story, that's how it goes. But that's not this story. That's not this God, right? What does God do? He reaches out in mercy to them. He comes to them in kindness. He comes to them with grace, not judgment and condemnation. And the first thing God does right off the bat is make clothes for them. And this act of clothing them is incredibly significant. Because what God does, the text says, is he makes garments of skin for Adam and Eve. Where do he get the garments from? Animal skin? How do he get the animal skin? By killing an animal? So this is the first time in the Bible that an animal is sacrificed in order to provide a covering for human sin and shame. Does it sound familiar? It's not the last time, is it, that would happen? This provides a pattern for every sacrifice that would now be offered. All of the animal sacrifices offered right through the Testament, the Old Testament. And it provides the pattern for the one all-sufficient sacrifice who would come. Jesus Christ, who was, whose life was taken like a lamb to the slaughter to provide the ultimate covering for our shame, for our sin, so that we would be clothed in garments 
of righteousness. Come on, this is unbelievable. What God does here right in the aftermath of sin is he shows us something about Jesus. First thing he does is he points us all the way to the climax of the story and he says, I'm not giving up on this. I'm not giving up on you. I'm gonna come and find you. I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna find a way. And that way is gonna be Jesus. And I'll give you a little hint of it right now by making these animal skin clothing for you to wear. It's incredible what God does. And it brings us all the way back to God's words to the serpent back in verse 15, where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, what's going on here? This is about a lot more than the relationship between woman and snakes. Okay, that's a very interesting topic, but that's not what's being said here. <laughs> this is the word offspring can either be used as a collective offspring, lot of, lots of descendants, or it can be one individual offspring. Guess what it's talking about here? One. This is about one particular offspring of Eve, one son of Eve, who would come generations later, thousands of years later, who would walk this earth and would do exactly what's described here. There would be this great battle between the offspring of Eve and the serpent. And this is pointing, of course, to the way in which there would be this great battle between Jesus, the son of Eve, and Satan. And this battle has two parts to it. First, the serpent will strike the heel. He'll strike the heel of Eve's son, Eve's offspring. And that, this refers to the way that Satan attacked Jesus through his life, and especially on the cross. I mean, Satan put Jesus on the cross, didn't he? In a very real sense. I know it was part of God's plan, but you think Satan entered into Judas? He was masterminding this thing. He wanted Jesus on the cross. He struck the heel. That's the heel strike right there. And he thought that when Jesus hung on the cross, that he had the upper hand. He thought that was it. He thought he'd vanquished God and destroyed God's plan for redemption and salvation because he just took out the Son of God. That's what he thought was happening when Jesus died. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. He walked out of the tomb, and in doing so, he crushed the head of the serpent. That is the victory. When you, when you crush the head of the serpent, that's not just lethal, that's fatal. That's game over for the serpent. I mean, striking the heel is bad, that can be poisonous, but crushing the head is fatal. And when Jesus walked out of the tomb that day, he dealt a death blow to the devil and sent him limping off to die. I know Satan's still around, and I know he still tries to agitate our lives, but he is fatally wounded now mortally wounded, and he's crawling off to die because he knows his day of destruction is coming. Jesus has already crushed the head of the serpent. And here's how he did it. When Jesus died on the cross, he became a curse for us. That's what the Bible says. You think of the curse of sin, how broad it is, how pervasive it is. When Jesus died, he became the curse. In other words, that curse that extends out to the furthest corners of the cosmos Jesus absorbed it all within his being on the cross. He sucked it all in. And he absorbed the curse. He became the curse. And he did that to break the power of the curse in our lives and in our world. Because he took from Satan the one thing that Satan had over us, which is our sin. As long as Satan had that, he still had leverage. But Jesus died for that. He absorbed that. And so he robbed Satan of his territory, robbed him of his authority, robbed him of his dominion, robbed him of his power, stole the keys to death and Hades and set the prisoners free. That's what Jesus did. He broke the curse 
and he put the curse in reverse. That's what Jesus has done, and that's what Jesus is doing now. He's reversing the curse. He's undoing all that Satan has done and all that the curse has done. Think of all those ripples, all those layers. Jesus undoes all of that. He starts at the center, and he restores us to God, and he makes it possible for us again to access the presence of the Father. And then he restores our relationship with self by enabling our mental and emotional and physical well-being to be repaired, redeemed, healed, restored. And then he heals our relationships with one another by opening up whole new possibilities for human relationships that are characterized by shalom, peace, and not by enmity and hostility. And then he goes further, and one day Jesus is going to return, and he's going to set creation free. The whole earth itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. I don't think in the end Jesus is just going to burn up the earth and chuck it in the rubbish bin. He's called this world good. I don't think he's given up on it yet. One day he will purge it of sin and he will resurrect this creation along with us and we'll enjoy life in this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. No more weeds, no more thorns, no more thistles, no more gorse, just this beautiful idyllic paradise. That's the way it was always supposed to be. All this is beautifully captured in the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, funnily enough. There's a third verse to that song I found, and we never sing it, but it goes like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That's what Jesus has done. That's why we need a big view of sin. Because the cross is the solution to whatever the problem of sin is. And so if you have a very small, shrunken up, shriveled view of sin, you're going to end up with a very small, shrunken up, shriveled view of the cross. But if you have a huge view of sin and you appreciate the devastation it has caused in the entirety of God's creation, you're going to come and have a huge view of the cross. Because the cross stretches to the furthest extent of what sin is damaged. And it restores and repairs and redeems the whole lot so that grace abounds even further than sin. The cross reaches out through time and space and throughout the cosmos and it repairs every single thing that sin has damaged and affected. Now we know that doesn't all happen now. We know we're still living in a world, we feel the weight of the curse in our lives. We look around, we see brokenness, dysfunction, and devastation. We are still, in many ways, under the curse. And we know we're still waiting for that day when Jesus returns and makes all things new. But it's also true that Jesus is not waiting until that day to get started, right? He started when he walked out of the tomb. He started on Resurrection Sunday. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, he put the curse in reverse, and he's reversing it right now. He is undoing the effects of sin in the world right now and he's moving his kingdom forward. And the best part is he invites us to be part of that. He invites us into that and he says, I want you to work with me. I want you to participate with me in undoing all the devastation, undoing the effects of sin, undoing the curse and rolling forward the kingdom of light, pushing back the darkness, pushing back the hopelessness, pushing back the despair and moving forward the kingdom of life and life and everlasting righteousness. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. And we do it in all kinds of ways, all kinds of small little ways. We do it through the relief fund. You hear that story of Belinda's uh, getting through the relief fund, accessing some, some help for her friend 
who was going through difficult times. I mean, that's helping people in the world like Daniel Blake. And that's saying we're not actually just going to sit back and let the thorns and the thistles grow in people's lives. We're not just going to let the curse have its effect because that's never what God intended. He's put the curse in reverse and he asks us to be part of that solution. So now we're saying we're going to be part of digging out the weeds, literally and metaphorically. We're going to be part of pulling out the thorns and thistles in people's lives and being part of the solution, and we're going to do it in Jesus' name. We do it through the Relief Fund. We do it through CAP Life Skills that's going on at the moment. A bunch of people that are meeting each week, gain some practical wisdom for life. But what's happening in those times, it's not just people that are being helped and supported. We're part of a much bigger story here. We're reversing the curse of sin, aren't we? We're putting the curse in reverse and we're pushing it backwards just a little bit more. I mean, Jesus is doing this through us. It's not our merit, it's his. But we are part of a story that stretches all the way back to Genesis 3 and stretches all the way on to the new creation. It's a big, big story that we're part of. But it can look like very, very small things as we reach out in faith and hope and love in words and deeds to people around us. Everyday conversation, small acts done in great love, still part of reversing the curse. So I just pray as you go through this week that maybe your eyes are open a little bit more to the brokenness of the world and that as you see brokenness, as you see, you, you see it in the media, you see it in the world, you see it in your own heart, let's be honest. We only need to look in our own lives, right, to see the curse of sin. But I pray as we see this that we would connect this back to the story in Genesis 3 and recognize this is the curse that we are still under because of what happened in the garden. But let's also become aware of all the ways, big and small, that Jesus is opening his arms to us and saying, hey, I'm doing something about this. He's already won the victory. He's already broken the curse. He's implementing his victory in the world. So let's be aware of all the ways and that he's inviting us to be part of reversing the curse in our lives, in our relationships and families and neighborhoods and schools and communities and world. And let's do all that with our eyes fixed on the one who stands at the center of history the center of eternity, the center of God's plan of redemption and who has provided the ultimate sacrifice to cover over our guilt and our sin and our shame. Jesus is the hope of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful to you that you have come into a world that is so ravaged by sin, so filthy, so contaminated. And, and Jesus, you've just stepped into the middle of all that and you've waded into it, into all the filth. And you've become a curse. And Jesus, we, do, we can't even grasp the enormity of that, that you became a curse. You became sin for us. But you've done it, Jesus, so that we might be the righteousness of God. And we just want to say thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. Thank you that right from the beginning, it was in the Father's mind to do this. Right from the beginning, this was part of the plan, that you have not left us in our own depraved state, God. We never deserved it, but you have come to us and reached out and you've rescued us and you've done it in such an extraordinary way. And we're just so grateful to be the recipients and the beneficiaries of your kindness and your grace and your love. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to the ways in which you're calling us to help 
pull the thorns and the thistles out, out of our own lives and our own hearts, our relationships, and the lives of others, God, that have been damaged by sin. Help us to do this with your grace and your love as we follow you into the new creation. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.